Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. My friend Koshin Paley Ellison has this thing where he talks about how we all live in, in zombie land. Yeah, humans are, I should say, wired for self-centeredness, solipsism, or uh, as the, the writer David Foster Wallace once put it, we, we live, all of us, in these skull-sized kingdoms. But Koshin's point is that in this era of mobile phones and social media, it puts these you know ancient self-centered impulses on steroids we're all kind of just walking around in our own little worlds and his answer is and we've done plenty of podcasts on you know how to manage your relationship with tech but his answer is a much more holistic which is this word intimacy that is a tricky word it's encrusted with all sorts of cultural clichés but koshin really defines it as uh, in a very simple way, which is, and I'm using, I think these are his exact words here, completely allowing yourself to be wherever you are in a spontaneous way. So this this can be with your romantic partner, your colleagues, the barista at Starbucks. It doesn't really matter. And Koshin's goal is to do for intimacy what's already been done for mindfulness. In other words, to make it a widely aspirational skill. Uh, he is uh, the co-founder of the New York Center uh, Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Uh, one of the many things they do at uh, the Zen Center is uh, train people to volunteer in hospices. Uh, you may have heard me talk in the past about how my wife and I went through their training and as a result became really good friends with uh, Koshin and his husband, Chodo, who's also uh, who's the other co-founder of the center. Uh, Chodo and Koshin were on the show together back in episode 17, but I wanted to bring him back for this episode, because Koshin has this new book, it's called Wholehearted. The subtitle is Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. I should say a lot of people come on here who are friends, but Koshin's a, an especially close one. Uh, he, he and Chodo were at our house for dinner on Sunday. I was sweating next to him on a bike in, in a spin class last night. And this interview is, uh, I think, as a, as a consequence of our friendship, really candid and really revealing. Uh, we talk about the concepts I've already mentioned, like zombie land, intimacy, spontaneity, also something called healthy embarrassment. And he, he opens up um, in, some, in some ways that I find quite brave and admirable about horrible things that he endured when he was a kid and how he recently had a, a super aggressive troll who was recently arrested. A quick note before we roll here, Koshin has some talks up in the 10% Happier app that are worth checking out, and they relate to stuff that we talk about on the show today. Uh, If you've uh, missed the talks section on the app, go check it out. It's a new feature. Uh, It's basically these short talks, four, five, ten-minute zaps of wisdom. Um, And, uh, yeah, you can go check them out in the app. Anyway, enough yammering from me. Let's listen now to Koshin Paley Ellison. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. What is Zombieland? Zombie land for me is the way that we are just like moving around in our life. You see bodies moving. Like I just came from 23rd Street and you see people, they see the bodies walking down the street, but they're engrossed in distraction and they're just like hungry. And they're the, if you look at their 
people's eyes when they're looking into their phone as they're walking and just like you can almost feel like the zombie quality of it it's as if like they're gonna like that what they need to eat the brain that they need to eat is inside the phone and uh, it's heartbreaking and amazing and I saw this person this morning coming out of Starbucks on their phone with their latte or whatever it was, like, and so they bumped into someone walking down the street, and they were like, you, you know, without even turning away for one second. And they might as well just have been like, (laughs) yeah, and it's just how it can be. Why was it so important for you, for you to invoke Zombieland right at the front of your book? <laughs> well, for me, it's one of the things that I'm most concerned about. And I feel that in my practice as a Zen teacher and as a psychotherapist and as a contemplative care person, I feel that I see it all the time that this the blinders feel thicker than ever where people – don't want to see really what they see. And then it's almost like that the shield, it's like a shield over people's eyes and it just feels heartbreaking. And yet there's this incredible hunger. And I feel like it's actually one of the reasons what inspired me that kind of zombie like quality that is taking over. And that's why like in the book, I talk about, you know, the, how pervasive social isolation is and how people are so fragmented and not actually connecting with the people who they really care about. And it's one of the pandemics of our time. And I think that there's no mistake that, you know, all of these zombie TV shows and movies are constantly in people's minds. And zombies actually come from one of the origins of the term come from uh, orphan children where they're just like starving for father and mother for warmth and care and i feel like actually knowing kind of the archaic where it comes from is makes it even more interesting is that we're like a society becoming a society of orphans where we don't even know how to connect to our partners and to our friends. And it's so sad. And we see social isolation, you know, the cost of it, it's leading to, uh, you know, I don't know exactly the causal link here, but we see social isolation at the same time as we see rising anxiety, depression, suicide rates, especially Mm -hmm. among young people. Something's going on here. And obviously, a lot of it can be linked to the phone and the social media apps on the phone. Mm-hmm. But it's also just the way we live now, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Bowling Alone, that great book by the Harvard researcher, came out before the phone, mm-hmm. as far as I can remember, with the, the whole idea that we, we now – this was a famous book about how we we used to have bowling leagues. Now we bowl alone. And this mm-hmm. – so this is – this trends – this trend's been going on for a long time. So what do you think we can – as an individual, somebody listening to this, what what can they do about it for themselves? Well, it's a great question. And to me, the key is to 
really learn how to first address it and notice how our behaviors, you know, the historical Buddha talked about that our actions are our true belongings. So like, how are we actually functioning? And to me, be able to feel embarrassed and have a kind of a healthy embarrassment about how we're functioning and to just appreciate how much of it is covering our own vulnerability and how we hide because we're scared. And there's no, that is nothing new. And the, what's happened is that we don't have the connections that we used to have. So we used to be, you know, maybe 40,000 years ago, you know, in the cave with our folks. And, of course, people are afraid. But now we're afraid and feel vulnerable, and yet we don't have anyone to turn to. And I hear this more and more. I was thinking about my friend Tarona and in her oh. Tarona Low Dog. She's this incredible physician, midwife, karate person. She's incredible. She, <laughs> I didn't expect karate to land in there. Okay. <laughs> she's incredible. She's a martial artist and an herbalist. She's like this incredible being. And she was talking about when people come into her practice for primary care that she asked them when the first things she asked is, you know, so who are your five? Who are the five people who right now we could call and no matter what, they would be here? And what she's been seeing since the 80s is maybe this is near the time when this really began to tilt, is that she experiences many people now saying, um... Well, my sister. And then they reflect on it and say, mm, well, she's really busy. And she said, and then the silence after that is always what moves her. Is that people don't even often have one. You know, person who they feel, even if they're married or <laughs> live with children and they don't know who would really, when the chips are down, who would really show up? And so she writes on a prescription pad, you know, find your five. And so to me, that's one of the aspects also in the book that I talk about is how do you find your community and really work with your community? So if you're feeling that kind of isolation, how do you, you know, just feel your breath and really feel like what's happening in your life and feel your isolation and realize how much connection and care and love is important to you and how do you widen out? By the way, this is not some foo-foo, woo-woo, <laughs> foofy, woo-woo thing here. I mean, the the we're wired for social connection. This comes to us, we come by it honestly through something called evolution and <laughs> You know, there's an expression in, in sort of evolutionary studies like a lonely monkey is a dead monkey. In other words, if you were lonely, kicked out of the tribe mm -hmm. uh, as an early human, you died. Right. This is, so there's a reason why our bodies react very negatively to isolation because we are not wired for this. Right. And yet modern culture has designed us – has design, designed in such a way that social connections have become weaker and weaker and more frayed and more frayed. Mm. Uh, there's so much in what you just said that I wanted to react to. One is I'm just thinking, like, who's my five? I mean, obviously my wife, who you, you know and you're quite close with uh, because she's now involved in the Zen Center, and um, my brother, 
But it gets a little tougher after that. I mean, I do have a lot of close friends, and but I'm just thinking like who, which one of them would show up no matter what, mm-hmm. and for a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a it's you're getting into dicier territory, and that says a lot about how we live now. And I'm lucky; I have two who I can say for sure will show up now and forever. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom. Okay, and I would say my dad, um, but he's got some health problems. So that's three. Okay, that's but that's probably I'm probably way ahead of the game, mm-hmm. and I'm having to think about it. Right. So there, there were two things I wanted to ask you based on the foregoing. Um, one is if you could dr- dig in on healthy embarrassment, mm-hmm. because we've talked a lot on this show about the disutility of shame. Mm-hmm. But healthy embarrassment is interesting, and it seems like a subtle a subtle distinction that may be very rich. Mm. And then also I want to ask, I just want to push you further on what we can, if somebody is listening to this and thinking, okay, wow, I can't, I can't, I can maybe come up with one, but I can't get to five or I can't even get to one. Mm-hmm. Well, how does one go about creating these relationships? So I've thrown two questions at you, take them in whatever order you want. <laughs> well, they're great questions. Mm. So healthy embarrassment for me is so important. And one of the things that I just, you know, as I was just telling you that I finished doing the audio version of the book. And so reading a lot of these stories that I was sharing, I felt so exposed and a little embarrassed. Mm. Like I said that, I wrote that. And just to feel what that feels like, like, Whoa. Mm. And I felt so, yeah, like the exposure and it felt when I really allowed the feeling to actually feel it in my body, I felt that, wow, I can feel that. And it didn't feel overwhelming, but at first it felt like, <gasps> uh-oh. But then the more I got curious about the feeling, I felt like, well, that's, kind of like a little embarrassing moment. Wow. And to allow that. So I think that for me, that is actually maybe one of the, it goes into your second question about allowing ourselves to be exposed. It's like that beautiful essay you wrote, actually, for me about your body. And oh, So just to fill that in, I, wrote, I, had a, I had until recently a column in Men's Health. I may, I'm pa- pressing pause in that because... Partly out of sort of a self-compassionate impulse that I have too much on my plate. Uh, but for the, most of this year, I've had a column in Men's Health, and I wrote something in there about uh, – based on a lot of the work that I've done with you mm-hmm. about coming closer to our mortality, right. knowing that we're going to die. We'll, we're going to get into that in this talk, in this discussion. But I wrote a column talking about how – I notice a lot that I have this running dialogue around, wow, I have way too much fat around my belly. And uh, and I was just in Miami with my family. I was like, cra- you know, you were at the beach. It's crazy how much time every time I walk past a reflective surface and I'm wearing just a bathing suit, that guy fall back into this dialogue of quite venomous self-reproach. Mm-hmm. And then paired with that is, again, I'm, I'm nudging toward 50, as are you. And every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, I can't believe how old I've gotten. <laughs> And one of the – this is a multi-front battle, but one of the antidotes – maybe antidote is too strong because that implies some sort of 
silver bullet cure. But one of the ways in which I've worked with this is to remember, okay, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Maybe that will put things in perspective here. How much time do I want to spend worrying about my belly or my increasingly pointy face? Um, anyway, so that's – I just wanted to fill in the gaps there. Yeah, but I, to me, I I so appreciate when you do that or others do that and then I feel that I can do that. To me, it's like you know, allowing ourselves to share even where we have gone from shame to kind of reflection or shame to kind of a healthy embarrassment like, oh, there I go again, like with my – venomous creature inside that says all these nasty things and to me this is also where relationship is so important because if i'm willing to do that and you're willing to do that then there's a possibility and a willingness to actually have a much more rich and what i think of as a loving relationship that we can love and appreciate one another in a different way and that we're not used to. And yet, as you were saying, we hunger for. We want to feel seen and heard and experienced. And to me, it's like where I love, you know, what we can do. And you're asking about, well, what can someone do listening is really pay attention to who in your life do you want to know you and make, have some experiments so see if those relationships and make time for them. You know, many people, we also live in this culture where people, I hear it all the time, especially in the lobby of our Zen Center building, oh, how are you doing while they're on their phones? How are you doing? How are you doing? And they say, oh, busy, crazy busy. How about you? Crazy busy, crazy busy. And they're flipping, flipping, swiping away. And it's just like that becomes instead of saying, well, it reminds me of the story of my dad that actually I talk about in the book about where they're in the grocery store by the tomatoes. And this guy says, oh, hey, Richard, how are you? And he said, good, how are you? And they said, and normally they've been seeing each other for, I don't know, 10 years, people in the grocery store that you see. And they always had the same exchange. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. And this one day he said, well, Richard, do you really want to know? Somebody, this is your dad's Richard here. Yeah. Yeah. And my dad thought for a moment and said, yes, I do. And then he began to share this story about his wife's illness and the struggles with one of their kids and actually what was happening, all happening in the grocery aisle by the tomatoes. It was so amazing. And they both embraced at the end of it. These people who seemingly were strangers and yet, because they were both willing to show up, they were never the same again, you know? And I feel like it's such a beautiful example for, you know, thinking about the coffee place I like to go to and the baristas. Like, I love learning about what, what their deal is and their lives and their kids and school and all of the different things that are happening in their lives, what's happening for the summer, whether they're going to get to the beach or not. And it's about having curiosity about the people that are actually in your life. And people often find it so unusual. I had someone visiting us on the Upper West Side where we live, and they 
you know, we were walking down the street and I was, you know, not going very far and people were like, oh, hey, Koshin, Koshin, Koshin. Like, and I was having all these interactions on the way to the, like, the next corner. And they're like, how do you know all these people? Well, they're like people in our neighborhood. <laughs> like to me, it felt completely ordinary. It's not like we were stopping and having deep soul-searching conversations, but we were just recognizing each other and kind of like neighbor. Granted, you stand out. You wear robes. Now you have to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, I feel some maybe healthy embarrassment, maybe something bordering on shame that, that you know, I walk through my neighborhood. I don't know that many people, you know, and it's my neighborhood. And it doesn't take that much. No, it's so ordinary. Hello. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah, and it changes the it changes the moment to moment character of your life. Totally. It's like the people who ride in our elevator at the where the center is or in our house. You know, it's like, wow, like I've gotten to know so many people. You know, and to me it's just fascinating to learn about who actually they actually are part of your life. And it's so interesting with like kind of the screens is just to me a metaphor and it could be a, it's a symptom, but it's also an image of like, we're just like looking somewhere else when we're actually where we are. Yeah. You know, I've really tried to train Maybe this is because I've gone through your, you know, so the first time you came on this podcast, I didn't know you at all or your husband. Um, I mean, it was the first time we met, I think, I think. Yeah. And then we became friends, like, pretty much immediately. And, and my wife, too. Uh, uh, and then my wife and I took your uh, nine-month training course to become hospice volunteers and had a big effect on both of us in many ways. And we have continued to be friends. And I think in part, I think it's multifactorial, but part because I've taken this course and I continue to volunteer in a hospice that that I'm trying to do better as a frosty New Englander who is obsessed with his phone to actually look up and have relationships. If even if it's just a hello, goodbye type thing with folks in my elevator in my building or folks in the elevator here at ABC news where we're, we're recording this right now. And it just kind of changes the character of your day. Totally. You know, to me, that's like, you know, why the subtitle for the book is like slow down, help out. And wake up. It's just about, like, it's so simple in a way. It's about, oh, you're a person. Hello. <laughs> and I think, I and think, that is helpful. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I always like to appeal to the pleasure centers of the brain. And, you know, and I think the Buddha did this quite well. And, and having positive interactions throughout your day feels good. I, I, I use this example all the time. What does it feel like when you hold the door open for somebody if you're paying attention? It feels good. So how scalable is that? Answer, infinitely. And I, Or, you know, I, I mentioned before that my wife and I were on vacation in Miami not long ago. And, and the way it is when you go on vacation with a kid, I didn't know this. Now our kid's four and I, I'm okay putting him on a plane. He's not like that annoying uh, to the people around us. And so I, we take him on a plane, we go to Miami, and if you're going to go on vacation with a kid, you're going to sit in the pool all day. Turns out, and by the way, you're not going to have your phone on you because most phones are not waterproof that I know of. So you're going to sit in the pool doing incredibly boring stuff with your son, and here's the thing. A million other people are going to be doing the same thing. 
and you're going to be, unless you really are determined not to be social, you're just going to be talking to a bunch of people you don't know all day long, <laughs> every day, with their kids. As it turns out, that's, and I say this as, again, as an avowedly antisocial, frosty New Englander who doesn't, like, say hello to strangers, I found it to be immensely pleasurable to sit there all day long in a pool trying to make sure my kid didn't die uh, and looking at all these other cute little kids and just talking to parents who I had never met before. And every day, new people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I think there's a lot to this. But, but that is, you know, you once told me that you were hoping with this book and with your career generally to do, and I hope I'm going to say this correctly, to do for intimacy what has been done for mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, am I getting that right? Well, it's the most important thing. Right. But we've been, ha- we've been having, we've been having, There are all these books, mine included, that are trying to scale up mindfulness, get the idea out there. But there aren't many books about intimacy. And so you're – that's the – if I understand it, that's really your push. Mm. But this daily stuff Mm. is different from generating your five. And so I guess I'm trying to get back to – and you talked a little bit about this, but how how we can – Make sure we have a five, how we can make sure we have really, truly what I would think of as intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, my hunch is that, and you know, I'm not a scientist, but that if we can actually change our everyday interactions, there's more likelihood that we're going to have richer relationships and have a base of support for when we need to really cultivate deeper relationships like the five that we're talking about. And to me, the people who are, you know, so tight in their bodies and so tight with their, they're not even intimate with themselves. Mm. You know, that they're not even kind of relaxed in who they are. And the other day I was teaching a group of, mm, 90 physicians and they're in this wonderful training program and we're doing this exercise that this experience where people are crossing the line for different reasons. Oh, can you describe what crossing the line is? Yeah, so crossing the line is a way of understanding who you're with. And so for example, the whole group will stand on one side of a room and there'll be a line, a literal line or not a literal line and so someone will say, please cross the line if you identify as a physician, for example, and they'll cross the line and then look back. And so the people get an experience of looking at each other in their difference. And, you know, please cross the line if you have a meditation practice. And so some people cross the line or prayer practice or different things. And so we were just exploring. Did, I did this exercise with you once on a retreat as part of the hospice training program. And it was really intense. Like cross the line if you've lost a child. Cross right. the line if you've ever been homeless. Right. And people stepping across the line who I just never would have imagined. Right. Yeah, it's very intimate. So it's like it creates a... You know, I think if it's held well, it really shows our vulnerability. And so it requires a lot of trust and a lot of 
work. I, of course, have this, like, the whole time I was in the training. I love the training in many levels, but, of course, I had this constant dialogue of re- rebellion and complaint about being forced to do these group exercises, just to be on the record about that. But anyway, carry on. Famously so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but it was what was so interesting is that these physicians had the last question. I said, you know, who, please cross the line if you feel that you do not have a life that's integrated. And it was so, I mean, even now it's so moving. And everyone crossed the line. What do you, everybody's making, defining for themselves what they mean they by, what you mean by integrated. They yeah. d- define for themselves. And so many people wept. It was that one. And so we talked about it afterwards. And one of the things that we explored was that how it meant so many different things to most people. But most people felt like that they didn't, it had to do with relationships. And they felt like that they did not, they were not living a life that had really anything to do with what was most important to them. I took it to mean like you're not showing up as the same person at home as you are at work, as you are at your volunteer work, et cetera, et cetera. Well, people talked about things like that as well as they didn't feel like they were treating their partners how that what with the values that they feel like are most important. They didn't feel like that they were treating or actually living a livelihood that actually was imbued with those qualities that actually they feel like are most important and they like put like the gauntlet down for it and it was so moving and so to me as a kind of so we're talking about intimacy so i feel like intimacy another word we could call it is integration and so like that kind of a will willingness to really appreciate our diversity in ourselves and that we have parts of ourselves that we want to hide parts of ourselves that we want to never see the light of day. And we also have all of these things that we really care about and how often are we actually living those things? And I feel like that more and more, and I think that that's, Hmm. What's so missing for so many people? But am I supposed to go around telling everybody my deepest, darkest secrets all the time? (laughs) That would be insane, right? (laughs) No, but the willingness to have certain relationships where you feel like that you could. And Ah, okay. But again, that goes back to sort of developing your five or your 20 right below the five or whatever where you can be – honest, open. Yeah. And I think that the more we can be a little more transparent, it doesn't mean we have to like share everything with everybody. That would be totally unhelpful. But learning that like that we have the capacity and can share what we want to share when we want to share it. And that we have the capacity and willingness to do it. And to me, it's just an ongoing investigation. And to me, it's one of the things that makes life so dynamic and that we can practice being curious about what's actually happening and how we're relating to it. How do you define intimacy? I know this is such an important 
concept for you. And when I hear the word intimacy, I think of, you know, romantic intimacy. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's known for that. But for me, it's about completely allowing yourself to be where you are. And spontaneous. And it's a practice to me. And and to me, when I've you know when I met this one teacher I was studied with in Japan, you know, one of the things that he, I felt so intimate with him, he, I didn't speak Japanese, and I was living with him in this kind of remote temple and the in the outskirts of Hiroshima, and we never spoke the same language, and yet. I felt completely intimate with him because we were completely in the experience together. We spent weeks and weeks together. And I would go with him no matter where he went, I would just follow him around. Why were you doing this? For his Zen training, just to like learn more deeply about Zen. And so he was this incredible teacher. And so I was just following him. So we would wake up really early in the morning and then we would you know, sweep all the temple grounds, and then we would, at five o'clock, we would be sitting meditation, and then we would do a chanting thing, and then we'd have breakfast, and then the next thing. And so some days we'd go out for Boy Scouts. He was the Boy Scout leader, as I surmised later on. And so sometimes we would be building forts and things like that, and other days we would be going and tending to someone who was very sick and just sitting with them or we'd be doing a funeral, or all kinds of different things, or just, you know, visiting another temple. Or And to me, what I learned from him was that he was completely himself everywhere and felt so available, no matter where he was. And whether he was doing, you know, basically doing the dishes or cooking eggs, or building forts or sitting zazen or sweeping or whatever it was, he was completely there and spontaneous and available and interested. And so to me, in many ways, that you know, he was a, a beautiful image for me of what intimate life can look like. It felt like he was intimate, like when we would go for these long walks intimate with that you know just wherever he was he was completely there you use the word and it's a word that i don't think a lot of people would put would pair with intimacy use the word spontaneity mm-hmm. or spontaneous mm-hmm. it, as i understand it that's a pretty important word in the zen tradition mm-hmm. can you hold forth on that for a minute yeah spontaneity spontaneity is a, a hard word to say <laughs> <laughs> Is uh, it's just the willingness to to be like, what's needed? What's next? What's now? What's now? What's now? And so it's like dr- the idea is that we're not living the life of just our brain, and just learning how to be completely wide in our experience, so that we're connected to the vast expanse of life. So if I'm just looking at you, and just kind of, oh, what is he going to ask next? And how am I doing and how do I sound or whatever, you know, which actually I'm not thinking, but I could think. But to realize like, wow, we're in this like really strange (laughs) 
wild room right now with we're like a fishbowl and we're maybe they're doing experiments you know in the next room and what are they doing and who is that person actually that's ford our intern who's recording us hey, right ford. now but it's so he's looking at us through a glass wall we're in a studio with like padded walls for to make it the sound good and we've got all these weird microphones set up yeah it's a strange looking room i'm so used to it but yes but just to like kind of widen out and so to me the spontaneous thing is also just like being where you are then you're like wow check everything out wow and suddenly it's a different world and so then what i do and how i am feels totally different I I remember during the course of the and I've invoked this a lot and I probably will continue to the 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 nine month it's called foundations that's the training you do in order to to learn how to be a volunteer in a hospice and in the course of the foundations training you talked about spontaneity a lot and it's actually quite important for me as a a morning television anchor <laughs> right I need to be there and awake at, at in quick situations and have a quip ready or in a lighter situation or in a more he- in a heavier situation, mm-hmm. be aware if I'm doing a live interview, if somebody's saying something, I need to mm-hmm. be, able, be able to get them to clarify that. If it hasn't been clear, I'm keeping the audience in mind. Same with a podcast. It's really about I often don't plan it. I have nothing, no notes in front of me right now. Sometimes I do, but since I know you so well, I don't have notes in front of me right now. So I'm really trying to be spontaneous. And the opposite of that, and this is something that I've been guilty of and continue to be guilty of, a lot is being so stuck in my head, planning my next thing or uh, thinking about something totally unrelated or thinking about, wow, my pants are tight. I can't believe I ate so much Mexican food last night or whatever. You know, some of that's going to come, but like how stuck in that are you really? And how quickly can you make yourself available again? This spontaneity is actually really important. It's not just like how good are you at improv comedy on Friday nights? Uh, it's it's really like how good are you at life? And to me, it's actually related to life itself. It's just like I think about we both have a love of cats and just like the cats are very spontaneous. Like they just like kind of are always actually in the present. I feel like my cat has some malice aforethought, some real pre-planning before <laughs> he drinks out of the toilet. I don't know how spontaneous that cat is. You met Toby. He's yeah. he's not smart. But anyway, carry on. Yes, I take your point, General. <laughs> he's a he's a special cat. He's a special cat. Yeah. Yes, I think Bianca thinks he's literally she's a physician, so she actually thinks, and I, she may be right that he's not getting enough oxygen to his brain. <laughs> That's definitely impossible. Mm-hmm. Now I've lost my thought. <laughs> right, I was too spontaneous there. Yeah, yep. it's how it's how you, you were talking about cats. Look at them; they are generally speaking quite spontaneous. They're not doing a lot of like ruining the past. But I think actually, even like saying like I lost my thought is a kind of spontaneous to me. Like I don't feel ashamed of it, or like oh wow, I lost my train of thought there. And so, just being willing to actually share what's happening with yourself first, at least to know how like i have no idea what i'm gonna say next and now i have no idea where i'm going and yet i'm totally willing to to show up in it with you in this case and ford and ford it's it's massively important in a hospice context 
and freeing. Yes. I was so unaware in training with you to show up at the bedside of total strangers who are dying and their family members are sometimes in the room too, so you're interacting with them too, how this idea of spontaneity and how you are going to be confronted with your own stuff in such a big way. My, In my case, like my need to be liked. I'm always doing like the special dance to be liked um, uh, or whatever it is comes up right in your face in these moments. And so the spontaneity as a skill, uh, which again is part of intimacy as a skill that you can build, which, and again, I'm going to say this, is not just something you should do because it'll be better for the world. It's something you should do because your life will improve. Mm-hmm. Back to my invocation of the pleasure centers always. Um, this is really important. Yes, and I would, and I think that you know it's like our secret mission of the foundations and contemplative care training is to get people to be with sick people and dying people, so that actually they can face what what they're afraid of in relationship. So that they can be spontaneous and intimate with the people in their neighborhood. So that they can actually realize, oh, like all the things I was afraid about maybe are completely controlling me. And my normal interactions in the elevator and even in the deli or the grocery store or like my dad by the tomatoes, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like all of these places in our life where our, actually our life happens you know the other day there was a woman who came to meet with us and she was talking about missing her her mother who had just died and she was saying it was it was the silly text messages that her mom would send and it was the way that her mother what she missed most was actually when she would go over and spend time with her mother, it was the annoying way that she would take a really long time to decide what to order on the menu. And she said, I just wish that I could have that time back because I miss her having so a struggle because actually she just enjoyed so many things in the menu, she couldn't decide. <laughs> And for all those years, I was just irritated, and I miss it. And it's just so interesting to think about how the things that we're irritated by or that we invest so much energy into not being with people are oftentimes the things that actually are places where we can actually get to know someone. One of the things you do in this train, this foundation's training had a very positive impact on my marriage because my wife and I did it together. And, you know, I think for me, I have a lot of social awkwardness, or at least I feel it. I don't know if that's the way it comes across. And I think it was showing up at points in, I was bringing that into the, into the marriage and still do. So it's not like we took this course and everything was, you know, like we were living in Brigadoon all of a sudden, but, <laughs> but it helped. And, um, one of the exercises you do is truly awful. Uh, it's called a dyad. And I'll put the emphasis on die uh, because I often wanted to die while doing this. But it is also really revelatory as well, mm-hmm. which is you have two people. Usually it's two people sit across from each other quite close. You're in chairs. Knee and your knee. knees are almost touching. 
and you are not supposed to break eye contact. And this is like incredibly challenging. Uh, You're doing pretty good right now. I, well, I think actually, like it, it got me on my game. I don't want to. As my friend Sam Harris t- jokes about this con- eye contact thing, and that he, when he first started getting into meditation, he really held people's gaze as a. I don't know. Anyway, I'll let him tell his why he does that. But he he would talk about how occasionally he would meet somebody who was also in that game, and that it felt like they were in they were playing War of the Warlocks. Um, and so, yeah, it can get pretty intense and you could take it too far or whatever. But holding people's gaze is quite important. And I traditionally wasn't that great at it. And still, I'm not, you know, I try not to be maniacal about it. Anyway, why do you do this? What's the importance of, of this exercise? Very often when people are say that they're thinking about something, they look away. So like they're sitting there with you and they're and you ask them a question and then they look off usually off to the left, top left or top right or bottom left or bottom right from where you are. And I've always found that so fascinating. Like what is that about? And when I've asked a lot of people what that's about is that it's usually that they feel exposed because they don't know what they're going to say next. And so it's the vulnerability of actually, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And so we have to look away to protect. So it's actually some kind of archaic defense mechanism to not be exposed or not be intimate, actually. Like, wow. And like we were just talking about, like, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And let me think out loud with you. And what I've learned from the bedside and being, you know, what I call awake at the bedside is really learning how. The name of another book you wrote slash edited. Yeah. Very good book. Thanks. And, uh, but to me, it's about really learning how to show up with our fear and just to learn how to feel whatever we're feeling without becoming what we're feeling. And it's easy to do that by yourself. Or I'm going to do a meditation about it. I'm going to think about being with my death or I'm going to think about being with my fear and working with those feelings. And it's a totally different challenge and to do that in relationship, to actually practice, whoa. And there's a reason why the Buddha in all his teachings he never said, go off by yourself forever and do that. So he was always talking about the, you know, the three aspects of, you know, I talk about them in the book about, you know, awakeness, receptivity, and community. So how do you like really allow community and receptivity in it? And so we do these dyad experiences to actually help each other remember actually kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, that actually it feels good. It's difficult and might be, we may also not like it at the same time, but there's something about, wow, just sitting with someone, not really doing anything, but just being together. Oh, I was freaking out the first couple (laughs) times I had to do it. 
<laughs> and then it'd be looking at somebody who was also kind of freaking out. Their face is like breaking out in like involuntary ticks. Uh, you know, it, it's really a strange thing. You would never let me do it with Bianca. You ne- you didn't want us to sit next to each other or do these exercises together. But I did find, or I remember my son was really young at the time, and and I would sometimes do, I would curl up with him in his crib and just stare and see how long the staring contest could go. He was really good at it. I don't know if I, I haven't tried it with him recently. But I did find that in my conversations with Bianca, I was we were more looking at each other. She actually... Doesn't have real, real. I was the one who was more blocked uh, on the intimacy level of, uh, than her. So, I, but I did find that that was creating greater connection as much as I actively hated the exercise while doing it. And over time, I relaxed into it. It's the first couple of times you do it. Yeah. It's it's tough. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We've talked about meditation a little bit. Let me raise it in this context. One of the things I thought I heard you say as we've gone here is that one of the steps toward having greater intimacy in your life, in other words, greater connection with other human beings, which are, we are wired to need, is to be okay with yourself. Hmm. And so in that context, is meditation really important? Can we do what you're talking about without meditation or is meditation really helpful? I don't know if you can do it without meditation. Um, 
yeah, so I, I'm not totally clear. But for me, meditation is this amazing way to really learn how to be in your experience. I don't know another way that has taught me how to stay and widen out into my experience and soften into it, even what I thought I couldn't bear. And to me, that's one of the key parts of meditation practice is actually learning how to bear what I think I can't bear. So like, for example, and I talk a lot about this in the book about, you know, these moments of like incredible sadness and sorrow that I ran from for a long time and that I needed to turn towards it. I had to turn the light towards where it isn't, as my friend Marie would say in her one of her poems. Marie, how? Yeah, yeah. You know, turning the light to where it isn't is like to me what meditation practice is in some ways. It's like that's part of it. So it's about allowing whatever's arising. So great sadness, great fear, and learning how to feel it and returning to the breath. It's incredible. I feel like in many ways I was talking with a student the other day about it feels like a superpower training. And to actually learn how to feel whatever you're feeling and come back to the softness in your belly, two inches below your belly button, to me is like one of the most powerful ways to learn confidence that you can be with whatever is arising and just come back. You talked about two inches below your belly button. That's it's called the Hara, is that right? Mm-hmm. If I yeah. recall from training. Yeah. That I don't think that's invoked in a lot of the meditation techniques that are my listeners may have heard before. So can you hold forth on that a little bit? Yeah. So the Hara is a place of focus and Zen meditation. And so it's a place so they're very rooted in our body. And so it's almost thought to be the center of the body. And what I experience is that it allows my, allows my experience of meditation to be fully embodied. So I feel like I'm re, really deep in my own body where we actually happen to have this vessel for a time and allows me to have the experience of the breath in the body, deep in the body. And it, there's something very different that happens. I always encourage people when you know, physicians or different folks that I have the honor to teach that, you know, just if you've never done it before, just put your hand there and just see what happens to the quality of your mind when you focus your attention to that place what we call your hara, two inches below your belly button, and just see what happens. So it's a kind of an amazing thing. And for many years, I thought I was like really good at meditation, actually. And (laughs) I felt like I was, I had sat many long retreats and I was kind of pretty full of it um, for a while. This is an example of healthy embarrassment. (laughs) It was, yeah, I thought it was like a, I was a really helpful person and really, you know, there to help other people. And it was actually through 
starting to do contemplative care that I started to realize like what a jerk I was and what I I actually would walk down the halls of the hospital where I was interning and feeling like wow you know I'm how secretly lucky I felt those people were that I was coming down the hall <laughs> to meet with them like it was almost like a nightmare and yeah, the healthy embarrassment of just like realizing, oh, like I was trying to be like rainbow bright or, you know, hello kitty with, you know, riding on top of my little pony, you know, <laughs> into the rooms and bringing all this good stuff. And to me, it's about, I was not in my hara. I was like all in these ideas about my practice, about my meditation practice. I realized like, and I was after like 10 years of long retreats and I was not even in relationship to where I was. And I was being a total jerk. <laughs> like I was, and I'm not even realizing it. And it wasn't until, you know, going into my first room when I realized, you know, what <laughs> what an <laughs> I was really you know I was just I was but using it with this like shiny exterior as if I wasn't an <laughs> and you know it was like going into this room when I couldn't see the woman and I'd hear from behind me hello sexy this is this is the story you tell in the books. Actually, let me just set this up. You had spent many years training as a Zen priest. And then you decided, really as a consequence of, of your grandmother's, Mimi's death, which again, you, you talk about, you tell the story in the book me, about Mimi, um, and you cared for her. You decided quite bravely, I thought, to cave, to care for her in her final days. You had a very close relationship with her. And she encouraged you and Chodo, your boyfriend at the time, now husband, to, to really formalize this work of what you call contemplative care. And so you started working in hospitals, and now you're about to tell the story of the first room you – or one of the first rooms you walked into. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so I walk in, and I'm, there I am, rainbow bright, and <laughs> it's a yeah, healthy embarrassment. Yeah. And I hear from behind me, hello, sexy, and I felt mortified. I couldn't believe, like, she could not be talking to me. And I turn around, and she's like, come over here. She's, like, patting the bed. She's like, come closer, Boppy. And I was like, oh, my God. It's almost like the, like the whole veneer of the whole situation had cracked. And I remember, like, the pit in my chest yeah, like I can't believe this is happening. And who was she? She was a patient in this hospital. And I sat down eventually and she's like, so, oh, you know, you're sexy and handsome and this and that. And I just, you know, I just felt if I could have put my head in my hands and cried, I probably would have. But somehow I was able just to stay with her. And then I just, something shifted. Something shifted in me where, and I felt like actually I came back to my breath and my heart. Oh, well. And the training kicked in. Yeah. 
And I remember actually putting my hand there. And I looked at her, and she's, and I was saying, so, flirting, huh? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go there. And she's like, absolutely. And, I, <laughs> and so we, she started, I said, so tell me about the first time you flirted. And she started telling me the story about growing up in Puerto Rico and being at the beach and feeling sexy in her bikini and how all these guys were really into her and how great that was. And how. And as she was telling the story, she totally came alive and how important that was for her. And she said there was always, I don't know if I wrote about this in the book, but she would talk about like that she felt beautiful like the Virgin Mary, that she was like adored and how important that was for her and, and how that actual, her sexuality was connected to her spirituality. And it was while she was saying, that, saying this, I realized and looked at her and that her body stopped just below her hips. And that the reason she was in the hospital was that she had both legs amputated due to diabetes. And I remember feeling the humility and maybe moving from shame to healthy embarrassment to just realize like, wow, when I was so caught up in my rainbow brightness, which looks good, I didn't even notice who this woman is mm -hmm. and what she clearly is experiencing and what I'm experiencing. <laughs> you know, I have two things I wanted to say based on that story. One is um, I think it's really helpful for people to hear that you can do a significant amount of, of meditation and still be an idiot. And <laughs> and I, I mean, I Big see time. this every day in my own life. Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about other people here. I'm talking about myself. Yeah. And this is not a panacea, right? In many ways, that's why I'm Mr. 10% and stuck with math jokes the rest of my life. Um, but you know that that's that really gets at what I was trying to get at with that title, and I think it's a really useful thing to hear, especially from a guy wearing robes. Mm -hmm. The other thing is this whole idea of soft belly. So I don't meditate in the same style that you do. I don't. The hara is not a big part of my daily formal practice. But you talked in the in the foundations course about having a soft belly, and I noticed that I come back to that a lot, especially if I'm in a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. So it gets me grounded in the situation in a way that takes me out of the racing mind mm -hmm. and puts me right there. So I just wanted to make those two comments before I move on to a question I've been meaning to ask you since the beginning, which is you mentioned, or since close to the beginning, you mentioned, mentioned that you had some time recently where you were reading the audio version of your book, Wholehearted, mm -hmm. and um, there were a few moments where you were thinking, oh my, I can't believe I admitted that. What was the most shocking thing to you upon rereading or reading aloud your book that you admitted? Because you do talk about some very personal things. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, so I think that for me it was a few things. And one was talking about the difficulties and that I grew up with 
you know, experiencing and witnessing, you know, various levels of abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse and verbal abuse. And I witnessed that as a young person. And somehow just saying that. Is witness the right word? Some of it I witnessed and some of it I experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, both happened. And there was something about just that sentence and saying it out loud. Something that I had never said before was incredibly powerful to me. And there was just something about it. And I remember my friend Matthias, who is the sound guy, the sound engineer, the producer of the audiobook, was also you know, looking through the window where Ford is and and with a tear in his eye. It just was like there was just something about sometimes just saying what happened without even needing to get into the detail of it is so poignant. And and so powerful. And I feel that many of us live in shame around things that we've experienced. And especially in particular men, I think that, you know, a friend of mine is on the board of our organization called One in Six about men who have experienced uh, sexual violence and that one in six men have experienced that. And so there's this, and there's so much shame around it. And to me, just saying it was really important and healing and the beginning of something new. And and I never, I'd, you know, I've given talks about it and I've done other work around it clearly. And, but there was something about it being written in a book that's out in the world that felt like an undoing spell. And I felt like that somehow, like, I think Kafka talks about it, like it's like the axe that breaks the frozen ocean. And I felt like that. And uh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book is that you have you had a troll hmm. tell me more yeah for 18 months I had a troll and so someone who is you know a for those who don't know what a troll is it's a someone who anonymously uses the internet to abuse people, basically. And so this person, for 18 months, was writing to me initially and then to many people that I know and then also masking themselves as very people who are important to me in different ways and using their names and basically sending tons of very anti-Semitic, homophobic, and hateful things. You know, really, we had three buckets of hate, which were, you know, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and that I'm not a real Zen teacher. And, uh, and it went on for a really long time. And I made police reports, and 
But really during that whole time, one of the most challenging parts about it was I felt like, whoa, like my practice, my meditation practice felt immensely challenged. And the place that I felt like I had gotten to, if there was ever a getting to of this, I, it was just showed me I was in another idea of my practice about how I was doing. And I really believe that there's no arrival. But I really keep seeing these different places, these little stations that I find my, part of my mind parking in. And because there are so many times that were so difficult where, you know, sometimes this person would be, you know, sending these horrific messages. Cause so I'd open the messages because they were like from you or they were from Chodo or like from all these people that I know and relate to and would get emails from. And, <laughs> and then you'd open it and it'd be like this horrific thing. And, uh, and then there were so many times where it was just, you know, just so wearing and so exhausting it felt like the onslaught of the hatred just felt so depleting. And it was really, talk about soft belly practice, it just felt like that was the time where I really had to really dig into getting real about my practice, about really what does it mean to be, to actually practice compassion? What does it really mean when someone hates you? And you know, I'm working with my teacher, which I'm so grateful for. And, and, uh, your teacher, Diane Friedman. So she's this amazing woman and she's a Dharma successor of the writer, Peter Matheson and, uh, an amazing woman in her. And he wrote the snow leopard. Yeah. Yeah. And really working with her very closely about, you know, how do I work with this, you know, receiving this hatred and how do I not let it overcome me? And whoa, I talk about like getting into like a low, I needed to get into a low gear, you know, thinking about a shift car, you know, like a, and learning how just to like really take it moment by moment and really getting curious about that. Cause many times it felt like an infection and that was coming in, and how do I really work with that infection? And, you know, that was their goal, was to, you know, create havoc and hatred. And so to me, it really was probably one of the most strangely important times of my practice, and we're really getting clear about what compassion is. And if the compassion doesn't include for this person, who I didn't know at the time who it was, then I wasn't, in my view, actually practicing. Mm -hmm. it, was lim it was limited compassion. Yeah, right? it was like some idea. This like, person, we should say, has been caught and you're not being trolled as we speak. Yeah, so the person, so yeah, so I still, you know, part of the practice too is responsibility and accountability for myself and other people, which I believe in. And so, yes, yeah, so the person was arrested and taken out of their home and 
handcuffs and was charged with the criminal charge. And uh, so that did happen. And and you're not saying your compassion for this person doesn't indicate that there should be no accountability. Exactly. You could do both at the same time. Exactly. It feels really important. But to hate this person to me is not where I want to go. Well, I was really interested because you, you talk about a bunch of things that would be sensitive for anybody to talk about experience sexual experiencing sexual abuse, having a troll, um, experiencing venomous anti-Semitism as a child where you grew up and for a while you were living in a place where there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And then you actually go one level deeper, which is to talk about how you have you you have a victim mentality mm-hmm. and that that has shown up in difficult ways in your interpersonal intimate relationships now. Yes. Yeah. To me, that was the ongoing power of the practice to me is to really look at myself really honestly and to look at that my and I feel like actually in some ways it's my own and part of it's inherited this kind of victim uh, mentality where I would isolate myself because I felt like I would never be really understood or you know I was being picked on but actually as a young gay kid and a young Jewish kid that was the case so it's also to me, the moving from kind of the feelings of shame, right, to feeling like there's something wrong with me, as opposed to like, wow, I can sometimes use this victim identity as a way to separate myself and actually not practice compassion. And it was a really interesting and important, and it keeps showing up, you know, this turn of seeing that being willing to like, you know, turn the light to where it isn't to like, okay, am I using this experience with the troll to say like, oh, you see, you know, I'm being victimized again, you know, and, but actually there was something about really feeling and learning about compassion in myself at the same time as using the police and having amazing relationship with the assistant district attorney and who actually taught me a lot about compassion and it's an incredible person. And so I think it was both feeling what I was experiencing from the troll and what I was experiencing towards the troll as well as engaging what is correct what I deemed as correct, which was pursuing justice, um, criminal justice. And I think it was that experience that actually shifted that whole victim stance in my life, which I didn't actually realize until this moment. And what does that mean to you to have that shifted? Well, that there's actually that I'm not helpless and that it feels like an aspect of my personality that comes out and that part has felt helpless and was in many moments in fact helpless and in fact no one would at times believe that person or 
I didn't have the resources to combat the situation or deal with it in a different way. And I think this experience was so important with this troll is that I did have resources and it was not the only story. And I feel like it's also because it's my own I think it's my own understanding of what it means to kind of grow up. You know, the wonderful teacher and friend Norman Fisher talks about, you know, it's about learning how to grow up and learning to take care of that little guy. And we all have some kind of little person with us who carries a very old story. We all have one. And the tenderness and learning to feel love for that aspect so as part of our whole, as part of our, kind of going back to those doctors, that integrative, it, like we has to include him and it has to include the troll and it has to include everybody. I mean, to me, that's the shift that is possible. And to experience that, even like right now here with you, it's just, it's so tender and so important. And to me, that's actually what also what intimacy is. Like in some ways, like you're doing your job, but also like we care for each other and and learning to ask questions that also are not, you know, easy to ask and be willing to answer them. To me is also, it's kind of like a, you know, when I was in high school, I was walking down the street. No, I was in college. I was walking down the street with my friend Liz and she just turned to me and said, you know, who gets to know all of your sadness? And I remember feeling, it was like another one of these moments where I felt like, who asked that kind of wise question in college? She said, My friends were like, who's paying for the keg tonight? <laughs> what, what, how, we had very different friends. <laughs> She's an amazing woman. And uh, yeah, I remember feeling completely dumbstruck by that moment too. And so appreciative. And it was like the beginning of me doing a lot of work and actually going deeper both in my own meditation practice as well as going to psychotherapy. Like I felt like, whoa, like I don't have the skills to even know how to answer that question with the dignity of it. Like the question was like, and it's such... To me, like the bravery of asking real questions is an act of intimacy and love. And, and it came clearly from a very loving place. She was really curious. To, to bring this full circle back, just to, to go back to the, what you're saying, that we all have this little version of ourselves that's got these stories you've you've used the term you use the term during the foundations course of we have this black bag that we're carrying with us and all of this pretty dark stuff is in there whether we know it or not and if you don't know it 
it's going to just show it's bleeding all over the place in into your behavior and showing up all the time. And so for you, victim mentality was in your black bag. Totally. And it sounds like being victimized as a grown up who had the resources to stop the victimization shifted that and probably will have knock on benefits for your marriage, for how you are with your friends, for how you are in your work with this center, this center in New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, and all of the endeavors therein, that's a big deal. I mean, it, it going to it goes right at your core thesis of intimacy. Yeah, and that you can't really be intimate if you're not looking in a black bag. You have to look at your. Yeah, and to me, it's like, and you never arrive. That's one of the things my teacher always says, and I, she said, no arrival. So you can't walk around and be like, all right, well, that that box is checked. <laughs> Done. No, because that just creates like a bigger bag. <laughs> right. Because then you're just basically putting it back in the bag. But to me, the kind of – that's why I love the word wholehearted, you know, where the book comes from. But it's like comes from Dogen from an old Zen guy who just felt like that's the life of like when you allow the 10,000 things to flow. And so you're not – he didn't say, well, the way to practice is to control everything and to know everything. But he was allowing – you know, 10,000 is like the Zen thing for a lot or infinite. Just to allow things to flow, to like be in life or kind of goes back to the whole idea and experience of spontaneity and intimacy. You know, it's just – it's so – to me, the possibility is incredible liveliness in the face of horror and joy. I think I heard my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, recently when I was quizzing him about enlightenment, saying that, that, there's, that there's an element to it of lightening up. Yeah. It's like you're just, the, if, you, if you're not gripping so hard and you're letting all of the, you, you made this reference to the 10,000 things, that's a reference to the fact that there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that happen in any given life. Can't remember who said it, but if you're letting them all come and go with some ease, mm-hmm. lightness, mm-hmm. well, that's that's one way to define enlightenment. Right. Let's just close by uh, being a little crass, which is that I always like to give people an opportunity at the end of the podcast to plug everything. Mm-hmm. So um, this isn't you trying to be um, self-promotional. This is me pushing you to be self-promotional. <laughs> uh, we call it the plug zone. So can you just plug the book? Plug the book before it. Plug where you are in social media. Plug the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Just give us everything. Okay. So the new book is called Wholehearted. So, so <laughs> you know, I never like doing this. You know. So <laughs> you want the, me to do it for you? <laughs> so the new book is called Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, and Wake Up. And it's available now. And as well as the first book I edited, which is called Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teaching, Some Palliative and End-of-Life Care, which is a book of wonderful writings by many doctors and Buddhist teachers about how to be intimate at the bedside. And I'm on social media from Twitter to Instagram and Facebook. And what else? At Coach and Paley Ellison. Mm-hmm. And 
New York Zen Center for New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, what I co-founded with my husband. And it's the address is zencare.org. And we actually have our own podcast, which is Zen Care Podcast. And I'm delighted to be here. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. As I said, really candid and brave stuff from Koshin. Big thank you to him for coming on the show. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a big fan of your show and uh, am a physician myself and listened to the recent episode by Daniel Ingram and found it very interesting. My question is about when he describes for people that are, are very busy and can't leave their families for weeks at a time on retreats and have a tremendous amount of professional responsibilities that in their own daily life, he said they can watch uh, the light, listen to the sounds, watch the rising and passing away, feel their feet on the ground. And it strikes me this could be a very uh, almost ironically distracted this way of going through life if you're constantly paying attention to every up, 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 as he says. And I'm I'm not sure how to reconcile that type of existence with, quote-unquote, living in in the uh, active, busy, modern world. So I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. Thanks again. It's such a good question. And I'm really glad that we reached out to somebody uh, smarter than me to help me answer that question because um, as I was reading, um, this, this Samuel, or one of our producers, sends me the questions in advance. And I was reading uh, – he sent me a transcript of that question. And I was reading it and I was thinking, I know what this person's talking about, but I can't really articulate it. Well, we reached out to Ray Hausman, who's the head of um, coaching uh, on the 10% Happier app um, and is – she is an extremely experienced uh, meditator and also really funny, by the way. I was having drinks with her recently. Well, I wasn't drinking, but we're at a social event for 10% Happier Folks, and she was making my wife and I laugh hysterically. Anyway, I'm digressing here, but Ray uh, weighed in with some some e- extremely useful advice for this caller. And it really has to do with not overdoing it. Yes, it is. D- Daniel's point is taken very well by me and I think by pretty much anybody who's interested in meditation, we should use our mindfulness as much as possible. Um, and you really can take it all in as you're walking around. You can feel your feet hitting the floor. You can feel your muscles moving. You can n- notice what you're seeing and hearing and all of that stuff. But there's a – you can go too hard at this, which would create this, uh, as the caller said – almost ironically distracted way of going through life. So here's a quote from Ray. Um, uh, Quote, we we can use a light touch with our attention when we place it on our sensory experience as we go through our daily life. The quality of attention we're aiming for here is a bit like the quality of feeling we may have if we were to hold something delicate in our hands. Bringing a light awareness to various aspects of our sensory experience can help drop the mind out of its tendencies to proliferate in the realm of thought and support us in relating to our life experiences in a more embodied here and now way. And she goes on to say, it's possible to have a light awareness of, for example, the body sitting in a chair while also being aware of the fact that we may be in dialogue with someone. Continuing to quote here, and I'm almost done. Just move. I've got several pages here. I just want to move to the second page. Uh, we aren't trying to pay attention to everything she says. That would just develop a quality of hypervigilance in the mind and ultimately exhaust the mind and the body. And then she actually follows up with one last little thing here, which is a way to kind of explore this for yourself. 
You can explore this on your own and get a feel for the type of awareness you want to have on your sensory experience by touching your thumb to your forefinger and lightly rubbing them together. Can you do that and feel it and be aware of what you are seeing as you look around your environment? Thank you to Ray. Uh, Let's do voicemail number two. Hi, I was calling about 60-minute meditation routine. Um, I know you said that's typically what you do. I was wondering if that included mindful eating time or mindful um, walking meditation, or if that is just your sitting time. Um, I'm currently trying to build one mindful meal into my day and one mindful walk into my day. And I didn't know if that would reduce my 60-minute time or if you would do that on top of your 60 minutes. I know there's no requirement for 60 minutes, but I just wanted to get your opinion. Uh, Thank you so much. Bye. Love it. Call from another, you know, hard-driving, type A, going to win at meditation type of person. I love it. We're kindred spirits. So this is clearly somebody who wants to do get up to 60 minutes a day of meditation. I remember I'm, – I'm so I'm so glad this question is coming in now because I'm at an interesting stage in my own practice vis-a-vis uh, these sort of time goals. Um, I remember when I was – when I first decided I wanted to do 120 minutes, two hours a day, and I asked Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher – the exact same question you just asked me, which is, well, if I if I eat mindfully or from uh, – specifically, actually, what I asked him was, does my walking commute back and forth to the office count? Because I'm – I could use that to be super mindful. And he said, no, it doesn't count. You should be mindful anyway, but it doesn't count as formal seated practice time. So, look, there's no hard and fast rule here. I, I'm There's no you know IRS that's going to come in and do an audit on how you're accounting for your meditation time. So – you, you should do whatever you feel is right for you. But for what it's worth, what Joseph said was that incorporating daily life activities into your formal meditation time, in his view, didn't quite count. He was, by the way, his tongue was slightly in cheek when he was saying this to me. Um, but I, I kind of agree with him. Uh, you know, we as meditators, I think it's it's great to aspire to be as mindful as possible all the time. So. Uh, that's that's a little in a little bit of a different category than formal seated meditation time, but I I will say that um, you know I, I I did two hours a day for years, and then I had as I've discussed many many times on this show this three sixty review where I got a lot of tough feedback about how I was kind of disengaged and stressed and impatient with people, and I I really started to realize that trying to fit in two hours with my mix of responsibilities, essentially two jobs, one here at ABC News, the other at 10% Happier, the app, and then also a dad and a husband and a friend and all that stuff. I, I just, it wasn't reasonable for where I am in my life right now. I, I did it for three years and I think I got a lot out of it, but then I cut down to an hour and I noticed that that was just much more manageable. And then I was recently having a conversation with Narayan Liebenson, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I can't remember if this was part of what we recorded or if it was part of our discussion afterwards. But I told her that I aim to do 60 minutes every day. And she said something like, you know what? I think you should actually drop – you're at the point now where you can drop the counting of the minutes and instead just try to meditate as much as you want. And I don't know how I feel about that. I'm, I'm basically – I stopped counting every single minute 
Um, I do now do a sort of a rough count of where I'm at by the end of the day and aim to roughly be at around an hour. But so this this question comes in at a very interesting time for me as I'm I think there's an interesting balance and it kind of depends on your personality and where you are in your practice. How much meditation time are you going to aspire to do? And is it really working for you? In other words, what is it? What are the results in your practice? But also, what are the ramifications in your life? Is, is it messing things up in your life? Does it make you unhappy and more stressed in some way? I don't have a silver bullet, simple answer about how you set this. I think it's something you have to play with individually. And that's what I've been doing in my own practice with the help of some really smart people. So I would say good on you for aiming for 60 minutes. Give yourself a break and 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 uh, try to work with this creatively. And also good on you for eating mindfully and living your life as mindfully as possible, that you're an example for the rest of us. Uh, thanks for both of those voicemails this week. A reminder, we're always looking for new voicemails, so call us up anytime. Uh, I want to thank, before we go, very quickly, all the producers who work so hard on this show, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, uh, our podcast insiders group who give us feedback every week that is phenomenally useful. Uh, and uh, to all of you uh, who listen, we'll be back next Wednesday with something new. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery dot com slash survey once upon a beat remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.